This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And Rebecca Ford. Hello. We have fun new releases to talk about today. We have enormously glitzy uh, in-person events to talk about. Maybe the glitziest we'll get for a while now. Um, And we want to uh, continue talking about what David wrote in last week's newsletter about the underdogs of the season. But I want to start basically by just grilling David Canfield. Um, Who did you see and where at the Academy Museum Gala on Saturday night? It kind of sounds like the answer is everyone. I think that is the the answer. (laughs) Not that I expected that. You know, this is only the second... Gala, they were celebrating the first anniversary of the museum. It had been talked about by publicists and and awards people as like, well, we've got the gala as our first stop this season, which I didn't necessarily know that that meant that literally if you were not there, you missed out. (laughs) Um, Because there were a lot of people there. Well, I mean mean (laughs) on the talent side. I mean like it's an amazing campaigning opportunity, I would say. Yeah, so – this is a relatively new event, as you said. The Governor's Awards, we've talked about plenty in the past, as being like a really classic stop that happens in roughly November. I think last year it happened at a weirder time because last year was a weird year. But it sounds like the Academy basically saw the opportunity to add another event that they were in charge of and ran with it, right? Yeah, and maybe nobody wants to turn down and <laughs> invite from the Academy. Um, <laughs> but you had the might of the Academy inviting, you know, non-contenders who are just happened to be Oscar winners and huge names. You know, you would see Kerry Washington talking to Julia Roberts at one corner of the eye, and then you'd see Joe Jonas and Sophie Turner. And, the, you know, it's, it was just everybody. But in terms of movies represented, um, you had multiple people from every, Everything Everywhere All at Once, from the Banshees of Inna Sharon, Bones and All, The Good Nurse, which is, which is to say Oscar winners Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne. Um, the Woman King, you know, on and on. So it definitely felt like, oh, award season is here. <laughs> Festivals are over. We are in Los Angeles right now, and we are we are ready to enter a new phase. I love seeing pictures of, I think, Emma Stone and Alicia Vikander posing together. Yep. Just like, a, you know, like when they used to bring all the living Oscar winners out on stage at the ceremony and be like, who's sitting next to who? It was like that, but in, in party report form. Emma Stone is a perfect example of like I, I did do a double take just because she's kind of been out of the limelight for a few years after having her, her kid, and you just didn't expect to see her there. And she, she has a she doesn't carry herself with a lot of 
you know, it's not like Julia Roberts entering a room necessarily. So she just sort of walked by me and I turned around and I was like, is that Emma Stone? And someone said, yeah, that's Emma Stone. And then that was kind of the vibe of the whole night. David, she was the star of Oscar nominee Cruella last year. How quickly we forget. She was. But that was still spring. She she could stay in her Zoom box. David, you mentioned the uh, team behind Everything Everywhere All at Once. And we talked about them last week because, Richard, you did a Q&A with them. And then, David, you had your turn on the West Coast with Michelle Yeoh. <laughs> I don't know if that means that you got more special treatment. But um, at the risk of talking about them too much, it sounds like their, their charm offensive really continues apace. Yeah, we talked about... They were at the Academy Museum Gala. We talked about that. Um, and this was a SAG screening. And there was there were multiple standing ovations. The, the love between that cast is, now that I've seen in person, can attest to Richard's point last week, completely undeniable. And I, I just don't think anyone's going to top their energy on the trail this season. So make of that what you will, because as we were talking about, that tends to be predictive <laughs> in the modern Oscar world. Yeah, I was going to ask, and maybe to lead into what I wanted to talk about with the underdogs of the season, like, how long before we start talking about everything everywhere all at once is, like, a real threat to win Best Picture? No. I mean, I was kind of convinced <laughs> when I did that Q&A, honestly. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. That's the power I mean, because it was have. a SAG audience, and they were, like, eating it up, you know? And, yep. like, the actors are a really big branch of the Academy, so they'll probably go in on nominating at least two people, I think, in that cast. And, you know, and then on and then on, you know, I guess, like, obviously, there will be predictive awards before that. I don't know if I see that movie necessarily doing well in the critics prizes, but like, there are plenty of other things that the movie will have the opportunity to be on stage and to be together at events, you know. So I don't know, I think it's a big force. And I just don't see that coalescing around, say, the Fablemans. Or Tar for that, you know, thinking about critics and, you know, couldn't Michelle Yeoh be a threat as a Best Actress critical darling? Like, if it's her versus Kate Blanchett and Kate Blanchett is, quote-unquote, the overdog. I don't know. I can see a path there. Yeah, yeah I, f- I feel like critics groups sometimes also want to go with the unexpected choice. And I, I, I do think there's still a narrative because this film is, you know, a genre that isn't always part of this conversation that it feels like sort of the surprising choice. So I wonder if it's going to show up more than we expect in those groups, too. Yeah, and with Best Picture, I feel like every year we have like, well, you know, they've never historically gone for X thing. And as the Academy keeps changing and, you know, tastes in general change, like those rules get broken more or less every year. Um, I mean, it does feel like a wilder movie than anything that we've seen in this conversation before. But again, like every year, you know, we didn't think an international film could win Best Picture until it did. So why not? I started the Q&A earlier this week by asking the audience how many of them were seeing it for, like, and I said the second time, and the amount of people who were, like, fifth time, sixth time, <laughs> seventh time. And these are SAG, you know, these are SAG, this is the nominating committee. Wow. So that, to me, was really indicative of how much passion there is for the movie. And to me, it is a wild movie. It is a weird movie. It is, at times, <laughs> a kind of gross movie. But I, I, it lands with such emotional force, and and that seemed to be the main takeaway for it has seemed to be the main takeaway for audiences that I've spoken to since it first premiered at South by that. I, I don't know that that's going to be much of an, a hindrance. I, I just feel like the way this race has gone over the last few years is the movie that voters connect to mm-hmm. uh, is the movie that wins. And Coda was a first in all kinds of ways. Parasite was a first in all kinds of ways. So I I'm reluctant to look at this movie being, you know, about multiverses and saying, well, that I don't think it can do that because Clearly, uh, it's connecting on a pretty seismic level right now. 
There's also nothing grosser in everything, everywhere, all at once than Tony Lip folding a pizza in half and eating it in Green Book. So, <laughs> absolutely correct. <laughs> I mean, the hot dog fingers. I think we could have that conversation about which one's grosser. But, uh, but I did shiver taken. at the mention of Tony Lip. That was I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> um, well, I wanted to talk about. Contenders who feel like underdogs in in some way, like, you know, need to continue pushing the boulder up the hill to be part of the conversation. And I think in Best Picture, it's a little different because you have 10 nominees. You can, you know, the underdogs could certainly be, nomin- could certainly be nominated. But I was interested in who you think might be an underdog to win Best Picture. Like, we talked last week about the Fablemans and where it kind of stands as this, like, presumed frontrunner for lack of other information. But is there anything else you guys see besides everything everywhere that really could win Best Picture, and maybe we're not talking about it in those terms yet. Yeah, it's hard because there's a lot of films that are so polarizing this season, it feels like. You know, Mm -hmm. I feel like Tar is so strong, but at the same time, a lot of people aren't, you know, loving it as much as I did and a lot of us on this podcast did. Yeah, I think it's just going to take a little more time to see what really pops, especially when we start having more events like the one David went to, because I think, you know, we're able to read those rooms and see what's re- what everyone's really talking about um, and be around people and ask them in person what, what they're talking about. But it nothing feels like that. And it quite has that momentum that everything everywhere has at the moment. I'm curious to see how Banshees plays this weekend. It's Martin McDonough's most acclaimed movie. It feels like everyone that I've spoken to at least likes it and usually really likes it. Colin Farrell and Brandon Gleeson have been getting out there. They're kind of in ridiculously charming as a pair, which is crucial for this movie because it is about their characters, quote unquote, breakup. Uh, and it has a lot, you know, it has, it's Martin's most beautiful movie. It has a really good score. You know, it has a lot of areas where it can hit. And if Searchlight really pushes it, I could see that being in that in that top tier for sure. Yeah, I think I want to talk about Banshees a little bit more later as we're going to get into what's out this week. But I think the promotion on that movie has been kind of vague about the story, both because there's there's surprises and there's a there's a metaphor at play in there. And I I can imagine in January, you know, ads for Banshees coming up being like, well, it's a movie about friendship, but it's also a movie about all these bigger ideas. And yes. and you want. I think any successful Best Picture campaign usually has, like, this is a movie about X, and it's a, a kind of a broad concept. And that that part of Banshees has yet to happen, which I think is probably smart. Is there any world in which Avatar 2 comes out, it's good, it makes a quadrillion dollars, and that sort of suddenly puts it at the front of the, the race? Uh, you know, I mean, because yeah, the original totally. did get yeah. nominated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't yeah, think it anyone, almost won. It almost it won. Right. Yeah, yeah, it was not like the fifth joke nominee or whatever, you know, it was, it was like real. I, you know, and I think a sequel is hard because maybe they would want to wait to do the return of the King thing and do it at the end of the, of the franchise's run. <laughs> when there's like Avatar six in 2075. Yeah. Right. That exactly. Like, like, I don't even know if like podcasts will exist when, <laughs> when Avatar eight comes out. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of holding out hope that there is a kind of late season, like a surprise, maybe not necessarily a winner, but like, what if Babylon is like, a huge movie or what if Avatar 2 is great? What, what if Wakanda forever, you know, because I just can't really tell what mood the Academy is in, but I mm-hmm. just have a feeling it's not going to be something small um, just because this is the first year really back since the pandemic. And um, I don't know, I think there's going to want to be a sort of celebratory vibe to the whole season. 
Well, that's the question I was going to raise with Top Gun Maverick, too. Um, you know, you want to talk about huge movie. There's If Avatar 2 outgrosses it, like, that would be really spectacular for a single year. That's a really high bar to clear. I think there's maybe even more resistance to that movie from an Oscar perspective, and you guys can tell me if I'm wrong, than with Avatar 2, because Avatar is at least as equal to a, a Best Picture nominee. Um, I think the sheer size of Top Gun Maverick might feel off-putting to Oscar voters. But like you said, Richard, it's hard to tell what the mood is. Like, that movie is such a huge success story for the industry as a whole. Does that make it more of an appeal? Or is the Super International Academy going to be like, you have enough, go away? I can't tell. Mm. Yeah. Does it win something like PGA? That would yeah. be, it's a long shot, but if it, it it could, it is the movie that saved Hollywood by all reported accounts that I've seen. So um, yeah, I think there will be that kind of support for it. But the Academy usually tends to, lean a little bit less in that direction, especially recently than um, guilds particularly or just the uh, public at large. Yeah. Well, that's also where everything everywhere all at once comes in conveniently because it's also a huge box office success on a different, you know, it it came before Top Gun telling people that people might go actually go back to theaters and it's such a labor of love and, you know, on a scale more familiar for Oscar movies. So maybe that makes it a happy medium. The Run Through with Vogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, We should be the mayor of New York. We all support that. Yeah, we support that. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, I want to talk about uh, underdogs and acting categories a little bit. And we've talked about best actors here and there. And I can't remember if we've had this conversation on the air or just kind of in the background where it seems like there's more or less like six really major best actress contenders in five slots. Um, And I can run them down real quick, but I maybe wanted to look at people beyond this six at who you think might break in. So tell me if this is wrong. Conventional wisdom says Michelle Yeoh, Kate Blanchett, Olivia Coleman, Daniel Deadweiler, Michelle Williams, Viola Davis are the six more or less. Do you see anyone else breaking into that six, much less the the top five? I mean, I don't think she would get nominated, but like I just reviewed The Good Nurse, um, and I think Chastain is really good in it. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. it's a total reversal from Tammy Faye in that she it's it's very like interior and quiet and small. You know, it's a very different kind of performance, but I think she's really good at it. Um, you know, and I kind of actually would like to see more in that vein from her. You know. But, you know, that movie, it's getting a tiny little theatrical release, but it's mostly a Netflix movie. It's kind of gray and bleak, and it's not, you know, I don't know if it's big enough to, to register, but I think she's I think she's really good in it. I do wonder if that movie had sort of had like a Sony Pictures Classics release or something mm. like that, how it would have done. Um, I did a panel with them on Friday with Jessica and Eddie Redmayne and the filmmakers, and 
they're definitely getting out there and and promoting the film and, and doing you know a big awards push for it. So I I agree. It's a great performance from her. It's a great performance from Eddie. So I definitely would like to see them remain a part of the conversation. If if not, and we can't count Jessica out. No, you know she she can do this. So uh, we saw it last year. So I think that's a good pick, Richard. I think there's also a possibility that the good nurse could benefit from the fact that Netflix's other expected offerings are not maybe doing as well as as planned so far. Like, I think that uh, White Noise kind of didn't make enough noise at New York Film Festival as it hoped to. Bardo is a big question mark, you know, and so maybe there is room in the sort of campaign budget or campaign, you know, sort of attention span or whatever to to actually devote some good nurse time uh, and get them into that conversation in a real way. Yeah. Good Nurse felt to me like a really solid HBO movie from like 10 or 15 years ago, which has yielded many <laughs> an award nominee. So, well, um, I've been thinking yeah. about Netflix and true crime, though, Dahmer being the biggest thing on their platform right now. Like, I wonder if peop- a ton of people don't find their way to it through that algorithm. And they're like, you know what's good is the good nurse. Um, I can see like Netflix being weirdly a good home for something like that. Yeah, and I think it's pretty accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly more than a lot of their contenders this year, um, which which is very helpful. It's an, a pretty audience-friendly movie, and it has two performances that I think are very strong and that people will like a lot, and um, and that are also from people who have won Oscars and are getting out there for this movie, which helps. Um, yeah, I, I don't think they should be counted out at all. It's It had a solid Toronto premiere, um, I think the question is just how it can stick, how well it can stick around, because um, mm-hmm. it is coming out a little bit earlier, and these are not necessarily actors who are going to be, you know, pounding the pavement for months on end. But it does seem like Eddie Redmayne's won like three tribute awards this <laughs> at various festivals this season already, so he's definitely getting out. They there. are both very good campaigners. I feel like we've all witnessed this uh, firsthand over the years. I mean, that's how he won Redmayne. Absolutely, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's very charming. And I think because the film. You know, I, I had people messaging me be like, oh, no, another true crime serial killer dark movie. But because of the way they tell the story and it's written by Christy Wilson Cairns, who's, I think, a really, really strong uh, screenwriter. It's, you know, it's much more about Jessica's character and it doesn't feel like I got so burned out on those true crime things, as I think we all did. And so it feels very different. So I wonder if people who go in expecting one thing and, and discover a different kind of story might also have, you know, such a positive viewing experience that'll help boost it up mm. too. On the other end of the Netflix spectrum, I would love to bring up Anna Darmus for Blonde in this context. <laughs> um, She's an underdog. Mainly because, sure. and I heard this a lot from like, I can't necessarily say who they were, but like Academy members at the gala. The the sentiment of, wow, she was so good, and wow, I hated that movie so much, <laughs> was so common. And I, I don't know if that helps or hurts her chances, but, you know, obviously there are visceral reactions to this movie. It's very divisive, I think, since it was released, divisive leaning toward negative <laughs> in terms of the overall viewer reception. But there seems to be no questioning that people really, really loved her in this movie, and that the movie was pretty widely seen which are two important ingredients, I would say, for an Oscar campaign. I don't personally think it's enough for her to overcome the overall reception to the movie, but I did, I was surprised by how often she was coming up at that event. I can't remember the last time a movie was disliked that strongly and an actress still, or right. actor still got nominated, but I do agree that's the I've heard that same sentiment of like she is amazing in this. I think if there were less um if there were fewer frontrunners, 
and such mm-hmm. gigantic, like clear nominees in this category, she would definitely have a more of a chance. Yeah, the, the other person who kept coming up in that kind of way, just because it was released the day before, was Daniel Deadweiler. But it was more like I liked the movie a lot, and oh my god, and, you know, it was it was mm-hmm. so was it like this movie sucks, <laughs> which it was for Anna. And I think that that's the difference is performances outshine their movies all the time, but. The distaste for Blonde uh, makes it a much harder path for her, I think. I mean, how much compassion is there in the Academy? Do you think there's any chance they'd be like, we just got to make it worth her while? I mean, she really <laughs> suffered for that thing. Like, we got to give her some some nominations, you know, because that, I think, would be the trick is like, yeah, we, we hate the movie, but like, look what the movie put this yes. actor through. And she's had a big year, a big couple years, like, you know, she's earned this um, in a way that maybe, I don't know, one of the other people in the in the conversation haven't. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, looking at recent nominations, like, you know, Cynthia Revo in Harriet, which is a not especially well-received movie, like, not hated on the level of Blonde, because few things are, but she kind of had that rising star shine about her, and I think got that nomination. And then same for Vanessa Kirby in Pieces of a Woman, which, you know, that was a pandemic year. A lot of factors were strange, but people, some people hated that movie, and she got that nomination anyway, and again, was kind of a rising star. So maybe that's a formula that can carries over for Ana de Armas. Okay, Best Actor. We've talked about some of the, you know, potential spoilers in this category. David, from Telluride, you were talking about both Bill Nye and uh, Song Kang-ho, who uh, were out there pounding the pavement. Um, Who else are you seeing kind of, I mean, really, it's Brendan Fraser, Austin Butler, Colin Farrell, and then a bunch of question marks. So it's not even like Mm -hmm. outside the five. It's like, who who else is going to push themselves up into the conversation here? Well, Katie, you are our Adam Sandler expert. (laughs) (laughs) Um not to count him out, though. He's, he's, he's getting out there. You know, if he's getting out there. He's in an, again, like on, in a Netflix movie that is seen. I think it was a big, a big success on the platform. I think when he does interviews, like not to brag, but like, like the one that he did with us where he's just being kind of like frank and looking at his career and you're, are kind of encouraged to think of him as not like that guy who makes like silly movies with his friends, but like a real force in American comedy for the last 30 years. And like to something of his credit, like a white guy, a middle-aged white guy who's not out there being like, ah, cancel culture these days. Like, it's all kids are a problem. Like, he's keeping up in some way. Um, I don't know how much more campaigning he's going to do. Like, he doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't want to, really. Um, but, yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't count him out. It was pretty won over by that conversation. Hmm. One of the um, bigger presences at the Academy Museum Gala was Decision to Leave, which I Mm. found fascinating. I mean, I think a big part was that Mikey Lee, uh, the media mogul, was being honored, and she's been such a force in getting Korean projects that more mainstream American, particularly awards recognition. But I wonder about that movie, which had a very strong opening over the weekend, and Park Hale is so good in it. And I would like to see him be a part of that conversation, especially given the fact that it is so wide open and now he is the face of a hit. It's a, it's, it's playing really well. I think that there's a lot of expectation and hope for this to be Park Chan-wook's Academy moment, which may or may not materialize, but regardless, it is getting that kind of treatment and that kind of campaign. And it would be nice to see him swept up in that a little bit. I am hopeful for Jonathan Majors as I continue to be as <laughs> my part-time job along with working here um, because I, I think he is really 
impressive in devotion. He really is. I mean, the problem is we the movie doesn't come out to November. Like, I don't know how it's going to do with the box office. There's a lot of question marks for this film, but there's no denying his performance. And he has been out there on covers showing off his giant muscles. And he, was he at the <laughs> Academy event? Uh, sure David? was. Yeah. And he's like, you know, he's pounding the pavement. And and uh, I talked to a lot of people who do, did enjoy the film. So I would like to see if he can make a run for it. I didn't realize he was in Creed 3, which had the, the posters come out yesterday, I think. And it's coming out on March 3rd, 2023 for Creed 3. Which, I, that timing must be ideal for Oscar somehow. I don't remember how the dates line up exactly. Um, but he's just so everywhere. Like, you talk about someone who's a star on the rise. Like, he is undeniably that. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess it's a question of if the, if the Oscars get on board sooner or later, really. Um, I wanted to throw out for Gabriel LaBelle of The Fablemans. Um, even, like, I, I have my constant refrain about uh, being wary of child performances, but he's 19. He is an, he's an adult, and I think has an, an adult-level performance in that movie. Like, yes. it's not wide-eyed kid. He's, like, really, like, going through a lot of things as a character. Is so charming and interesting and carries so much of that movie. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, again, The Fablemans is a question mark for us in a lot of ways, and I don't know how much it's going to carry him or how much of it will be the Michelle Williams and Paul Dano show, but I thought he was really terrific in it. Okay, I want to go to Supporting Actress, and maybe back to Everything Everywhere All at Once, actually, for a second, because um, that movie has two strong Best Supporting Actress contenders, I think, mm-hmm. in Jamie Lee Curtis and Stephanie Sue, and it's up against a, a movie with a, a gazillion strong Best Supporting Actress contenders and women talking. Um, I don't even know who to call the underdog in this category at this point, um, but to go to Everything Everywhere, do you think they're going to have to choose between uh, Stephanie and Jamie Lee here, or is a path for both of them viable? My fear is this is going to be a Belfast situation mm. where Stephanie Hsu is amazing in this movie and anchors it and I think has the toughest role, actually. I mean, it is, it's a lot of work and she just nails it. Um, but Jamie Lee Curtis is the unnominated veteran who is wildly fun in this movie. She's one of the most memorable parts of the movie for purely visual reasons at times. But now that she is getting out there and she was also, you know, there's also, I think, really good press for her with the end of the Halloween franchise, her part of the Halloween franchise, even as the movie was not well-received. I, I wonder if she will become a clearer candidate for that movie. And I, I hope that Stephanie Hsu can stay in the conversation because we were all very shocked when Katriona Balfe was not nominated and fairly surprised when Judy Dench was But to me, that just had to do with standing in the industry. And this, to me, seems like another example of that. Richard, I will long remember you suggesting her as a long shot Best Actress contender when the first Halloween legacy sequel (laughs) was premiering at Venice, I think. I mean, this is before you saw it, and to your credit. But I think you recognize something that's now become much more clear for everyone, which is like, she's never been nominated. That's bananas. Yeah, and, you know, to be fair, she hasn't really done much that would kind of catch that kind of attention, you know. I mean, Halloween seemed like, yeah, a nostalgic thing. You know, Sigourney Weaver was nominated for Aliens. Like, it can happen. Um, but those three Halloween, Halloween movies are horrible. So <laughs> uh, I, I think that, you know, that was that. But this is like, this is close enough to, I mean, it is an Oscar movie. It's going to be. And um, I think, yeah, I think she has a good shot. I think also, sorry, I was just looking on like the credits and stuff. And I, for some reason, I had in my mind that, Jamie Lee Curtis was a producer on the movie, but I don't think she is. Um, but she kind of acts like one, but not in an obnoxious way. Like, mm. I yes. think people have let her sort of be one of the mascots of the film. And I think, you know, in my Q&A with her, like, 
she was seeming to, she wanted to pass that off to Kiwi Kwan, which isn't, you know, so like maybe he'll become kind of the emissary of the film, but like she is a big, she is very associated with it in a way that I think she could really benefit from just, you know, if, if, if it gets screenplay, if it gets Best Picture nominations, like she would, I think, come along with that tide. Her favorite tweet, she told me, is, <laughs> uh, I wish I loved anything as much as Jamie Lee Curtis loves everything everywhere all at once. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And then yeah. she read the tweet aloud to the audience to <laughs> ecstatic cheering. So, yes, she is, she is the mascot of the movie and she's happy with the role. I mean, same, honestly. Um, looking through the list of, I went at the film experience um, where I go just to see the, you know, the wide wideness of the field. There's aside from Anne Hathaway and Armageddon Time, Samantha Morton and she said, and Jesse Buckley and Women Talking. It's a ton of people who've never been nominated before, which is really exciting. Like ranging from Stephanie Hsu to Gene Smart to Claire Foy. Like it's such a range of people who have not had their Academy moment. So I feel like this category has the most potential for just like really thrilling results on Oscar morning. I was talking to a friend about this. I mean, I think that because Carrie Mulligan is running and supporting for She Said, which I think is a solid movie. Um, but Jennifer Ely is great in one scene or a couple mm-hmm. scenes in that movie. Um, something like that could be kind of fun, like a smaller role. I mean, like kind of we're going to have Judd Hirsch on the supporting actor side. Like, mm-hmm. I wonder if there's that. But I think the problem is a lot of the times though those roles, there's someone else just above them who is also competing in that same category. Yep. Maybe category fraud. That's where people get the angriest about it, right? <laughs> right. Carrie Mulligan is in She Said more than Michelle Williams is in The Fablements, I'm pretty sure. <sighs> yeah, this, this is this is where people start to lose their minds. This is, and and I'm, for the record, I am I am okay with Michelle going lead for Fablements. So it's all eyes on Carrie Mulligan now, I suppose. I think there are two contenders here where, where it's worth looking at them in terms of having a really strong lead performance to go off of. One is Nina Haas for Tar. I can see the Global Academy membership really going for her because she's such an, you know, icon in Europe. And this is one of her biggest English language roles to date. And she is, it's not a showy role, um, but it's a very memorable one and really tied with with Kate Blanchett in this movie. And uh, I could see her getting swept up, you know, it's kind of the way that Jesse Plemons was for Power of the Dog if the movie's a big hit. Um, and then the other is Hong Chao for The Whale. Mm-hmm. Uh, who I think is really, really wonderful in that movie and has having a really big year. She's in a ton of things. She's in The Menu. She's in the new Kelly Reichardt movie. She's always so great. And I think there's an awareness that she's always so great. And now having a movie where the lead actor is, you know, guaranteed nominee, likely winner, I think could help her chances to find her way into the five, especially if the movie pulls on those heartstrings enough to get some overall votes. Um, I also want to bring up two people. I think Dolly DeLeon in Triangle of Sadness has been getting, you know, people are talking about this performance, even though it comes in the last third of the film. Um, And but she just like the minute she's on screen, I feel like you can't take your eyes off of her. And she just delivers such a strong performance that I'm hopeful um, that that could sort of be the acting performance from that film that that gets uh, a lot of attention. And then um, my big question mark is Angela Bassett, because yes, Wakanda Forever is a Marvel movie and a sequel, but and none of us have seen it. But I do think the fact that she has not been nominated since 93 and has this like incredible history of performances makes me wonder if if she does have a big enough part in this film, 
you know, if people will want to sort of give her that recognition. I love a world in which it's um, Angela Bassett and then Jean Smart in Babylon who swoop in at the end of the year being like, hello, we've been here forever. You're going to nominate us this year. Step aside, young ones. Um, I, th- I think that would be exciting for all of us. Um, speaking of veterans, I did want to bring up one more uh, winner who's in here and who was uh, there to personally greet everyone at the Academy Museum Gala. Uh, Laura Dern's still in the race, I think, for The Sun, which has had a pretty mm-hmm. mixed critical reception. Like, how much is she just r- such royalty that she can overcome a movie that's maybe not so so well-loved? She was my favorite part of the movie. I think that she was quite a few people's favorite part of the movie, actually. And the movie is getting a push. She's getting out there for the movie. And she is royalty. So there's the math. There's a path for sure. I I, I think the problem with this category is it feels smartest to bet right now that three of the nominees are going to be from Women Talking and Everything Everywhere All at Once, or maybe even four. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You know, and I think Carrie Condon is a pretty likely nominee for Banshees of Sharon. The Woman King also has a couple really strong contenders. You know, it's it's really stacked. And I think it's going to be very hard for a contender in a movie that is not an overall big player to, to sneak in. I uh, could be wrong, but it just feels like that is the current direction of this category. I mean, The Sun feels like a huge Golden Globes play. Also that. I mean, Hugh Jackman's going to be a Golden Globe nominee for <laughs> yeah. that movie. Guys, they've changed. Have you not heard the movie? <laughs> All right, you're right. Sorry, sorry. We shouldn't. I mean, we shouldn't it, it, uh... it sounds like you guys are implying it's a comedy, so I want to be clear. It's not a comedy. No, no. It's just no, a no. starry movie that the Globes would like. We'll get to the Globes. I can't want, wait to talk about those. I mean, The Sun could have its fans, you know. I mean, I think it's crass and manipulative and kind of badly acted. But, like, that, that, that hasn't stopped the Academy before. So, I, I don't know. I think uh, that's uh, we shouldn't count that one out. I, but I think, yeah, Dern is probably the best bet from that movie, although Jackman could benefit from actor being kind of wide open, other than Brendan Fraser, obviously. Yeah. Um, well, let's go to supporting actor then. Um, and, you know, again, there's some big heavy hitters are staying at the top. I was thinking about Kihi Kwan, who I felt like was such an underdog for so long, and now looking at everything everywhere and the fact that he's the only supporting actor, it's like, oh, He's actually in a really good spot. Um, so, I, you know, I would look further down. Like, have we answered the Paul Dano question in Fablemans yet? Do we know if he's going supporting or lead? Last I heard it is unresolved. Well, then. I mean, he's got a pretty tough road then because it's either it's tough and best actor. And then also he's got Judd Hirsch, like, you know, barging into the race the same way he barges into the movie to steal all the attention. He is in no way a lead in that movie. That That would be silly. I would agree. I think that Michelle Williams' case for being a lead in that movie is much stronger than it is for him. Yeah. I had this was my thing about Stephen Yoon and Minari a few years ago. I felt I feel like it's about the same. Mm. And Stephen Yoon got in. So But that was the COVID year, David. And all the rules were weird. <laughs> I think actors super weird this year. So I, be, being representing the best actor frontrunner, a best actor frontrunner in that category is very valuable this year because none of them are right now. <laughs> you, you know, mean the best picture frontrunner. Yeah, I mean yeah. except for Colin Farrell, you have Brendan Fraser and Austin Butler. And those movies could get in, but they're certainly not going to win. And I think both are right on that bubble. Um, Whereas, you know, being in the lead of the the designated lead actor of the Fablemans, um, I would not, I would not count him out. He, he did a big GQ profile this week that seemed to reintroduce him as a, someone who is willing to campaign and play the game a little bit more. He's um, he hasn't historically. So I thought that was really interesting 
And I think Judd Hirsch is really almost near certain to be nominated here for Fablemans because it's it's going to be such a clear career nomination. It hasn't been nominated since, um, God, when was... Ordinary People, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 1981, 80? Yeah. So 40 years. <laughs> um, and he's, he's 87 years old. That's incredible. I had no I, I just like somehow didn't realize that that was how old he was. And when I talked to him at that Banshees of Sharon party last week, he was very spry, very lucid, funny, campaigning for his movie, you know, to someone he just met, which was me. Um, <laughs> you know, like he's out there. And again, I think I said it, you know, during the festival season, like, I can't remember the last time someone got applause when their character left the movie halfway through the movie, you know, and that's what Judd Hirsch got, not just at my screening, but at a screening yep. after that. So, yeah, he's like definitely a significant Alan Arkin, Little Miss Sunshine sort of presence, I think. That's a per yeah, that's a perfect analogy. Yeah. Uh, well, I was going to compare him to Anthony Hopkins just as someone who is uh, getting up there in years and is out on the campaign trail. But we should talk about actual Anthony Hopkins uh, and Armageddon Time, which I think is a tough movie. I mean, James Gray has never really done all that well Oscar-wise. I don't know if this is going to break that streak, but he's really good in it. And the Oscars seem to love Anthony Hopkins. Like, I think if that movie has a shot, it might be him. Mm. I think Jeremy Strong is the one out there for the movie. That's true. He worth. has been everywhere. But and Anthony Hopkins also has, is also great in the sun, actually. Uh, He's he in less one, of the sun, right? He is. He has, he has one, one meaty scene. I would say probably the most impactful scene yeah. for me. Um and it's it's very, I think, tied with <laughs> his collaboration with Florian Zeller and the Father. So um it it, it could it could land. Yeah, Anthony Hopkins is there. He's always there. <laughs> <laughs> um well, then maybe I'll talk about a, uh, a long shot who's a little bit closer to home for us because, David, you talked to Barry Keegan uh, for this yep. show earlier this week. And he is, like Paul Dano, in competition with someone his own movie, Brendan Gleeson's Running and Supporting. I think he seems like a pretty uh, strong contender to actually be nominated. Do you see Banshees getting two nominees a la Three Billboards? I've been using Power of the Dog as an analogy for this movie a lot in terms of the amount of nominations it can get. Mm. Um partly because it literally has the same quartet of actor, supporting actress, and two supporting actors, one of whom, Brennan Gleeson, is, you know, going to make it through, I think, and is the ob uh, more obvious play. But Barry Keegan is really, kind of, in a weird way, the heart of the movie behind Colin Farrell and um, really sweet in it and against hype. And people seem to love his performance in it. So I, I wouldn't count him out, especially if the movie becomes an overall top-tier contender, you know. It, ha it seems to happen more and more, like Judas and the Black Messiah as well, where mm -hmm. they, an, ex an extra actor <laughs> seems to get into this category in a way that is not expected. And he seems that movie seems to be the one for supporting actor that, that would pull that off. Yeah. I do think if we don't see him get it for this, that that kid is going to be, be nominated in one of his future projects. I think he picks great films and he always delivers. And he's just, I think, one of the most exciting young actors working today. Yeah. Matter of when, not if. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, your interview with him was so winning, David, who's just being like, I wanted to show people that I can be something other than Sinister. Which... He's so charming. <laughs> he's know. also so good at Sinister. <laughs> I know, but he's so just like pitiful like, and creepy in Banshees. You know, his character like goes through a lot, you, but you, you, you see the human there the whole time, which is not easy to pull off. It's funny because right before I did the interview, I watched him, his um, audition tape for Joker as the Riddler, where he like made this short film of himself looming through hallways. 
Wow. <laughs> and it is it is brilliant DIY work. He ultimately did not get that role. Paul Dano got the role, who may be nominated <laughs> against him here, <laughs> for all we know. Um, the but he got the Joker. last person. Yeah, and then he got Joker, um, which remains unclear how big of a role that will be. But you know, presumably, we can't get enough of the Joker. So yeah. stay tuned. Um, the other person I would want to bring up here is Brian Tyree Henry, who uh, Causeways. It's a pretty minor movie, and I think Jennifer Lawrence has, you know, she's good in it, but she's certainly given more dynamic performances. But Brian Tyree Henry, to me, was the real star of this movie, and is so good in it. Such a, it's such a, it's a, the kind of performance that you would always hope finds love in this category because he, it's, it's a small movie. He gets this really rich, complicated character to play and just completely runs away with the movie. Um, and he's just always so good. So he's someone I'm rooting for. Yeah, I would agree completely on on Causeway because like he has kind of the the big scene in the movie. Uh, like there's yep. not really. It, big scenes, quote-unquote, because it's such a small movie overall. Um, but again, he's someone who feels like when not if, like Barry Keegan and like Jonathan mm-hmm. Majors, like yeah. people who just like are so undeniably talented that their moment is coming at some point. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Okay, before we go, I want to talk about one more new release. We talked about Banshees and The Good Nurse a little bit. Both of those are out this week. Um, but also After Sun, which is another A24 movie. We talked last week about how busy they are this year. Um, and it played at Cannes and I think got some good reception. And, you know, I'm watching all this from a distance. And then on the fall festivals, I just kept hearing from people being like, I love this movie. This might be my favorite movie of the year. And it's got a big emotional pull, which, as we've been saying, is a powerful thing. So um, Rebecca and Richard, like, from... Having seen it at Cannes and watch it here, do you think it's just going to keep growing and growing the way that it's been? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how, I don't know if it's an Academy movie necessarily, but it's going to win a ton of critics' prizes. Um, mm. You know. For and, what? Uh, well, best first feature. I would, I think it's a strong contender for that at New York Film Festival, or New York Film Critics Circle. Um, I think Paula Mescal, I think the young actress whose name, I'm sorry, I don't have in front of me, like she's great screenplay director i don't know like she like it's a it's a really solid beloved movie you know critically beloved movie um it's tiny so i don't know again how academy it is but um it's definitely like one of the indies of the year for sure yeah it's sort of the perfect a24 movie too because they're so good at these sort of slow burn word of mouth campaigns and you know they're so smart they brought it to telluride as like a sneak um and people were just talking about it on the ground there and i feel like it's really building up that buzz and I know all of us have loved it and and I 
I, I agree. It's, it's, it's so small. I don't know how far it goes with the Academy, but it's, it's definitely going to be a presence. And Paul is like getting out there and has been at all these events. And, and so I feel like it's definitely going to remain a part of the conversation. Yeah, sorry. The actress's name is Frankie Corio. She's really great. Um, and I'm just looking at the Wikipedia. And it, it has one of those posters that's like six glowing quotes from major outlets, like right, you know, like on top of the <laughs> of the title. And it's just like, it has that kind of patina of like, this just absolute critical darling um, that I think they kind of were caught off guard by in Cannes. Like, I think they thought it would play well, but like, it became a real thing. And then A24 bought it. And it just, you know, it, it it feels like a, f- a small art house phenomenon of the kind that we don't always see in, in any given year. Should we have talked about Paul Mescal in the Best Actor conversation earlier? I mean, maybe, you know, like stranger things have happened. I keep thinking about Dem- Demian Bashir's nomination for A Better Life, you know, mm. which was a movie that like was not, I don't think, on a lot of radars, but it played really well in L.A. Um, you know, it was, you know, Chris White's directed it. It like had, you know, pedigree to it, certainly. And Demian Bashir had been around for a while. But like he got a Best Actor nomination for playing, you know, a dedicated father. I mean, this is, Paul Mescal's role in After Sun is a bit more complicated, uh, you know, in terms of who that man is. But yeah, I don't know. Like, I think those outlier nominations can happen, certainly. That does it for today's show. We'll be back next week. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, where, Richard, you're reviewing uh, uh, Ticket to Paradise this week. We didn't talk about it because you haven't seen it yet, but uh, yeah. most anticipated movie of the fall in some quarters around here, I think. Always believe in old Parker. When in doubt, you know, old Parker made the second Mamma Mia movie. It's better than the first. He made the second Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Also, I think I was talking with podcast friend Bobby Finger about this. I think better than the first. So old Parker, you know, knows what he's doing. I'm excited. We'll have we'll have that conversation to look forward to next week. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at HWD. And you can find us on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. And Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the most surprising reaction to Avatar The Way of Water goes to Rebecca Ford. Oh no, another true crime serial killer. Dark movie. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.